Welcome to the Service Safety and Security Podcast with Dr. Steve Albrecht. I am the very same Dr. Steve Albrecht, and this podcast is sponsored by Library 2.0 and produced by the founder of Library 2.0, the other Steve, Steve Hargadon. So my topic for this half hour is bullets and books and bomb threats and what we can do to manage fear, especially fear of threats um, that may have come from patrons or anonymously inside the library experience. So I've got a lot of background in this, been doing it for a long time, uh, over uh, 30 years now. And I have some strong feelings about things like bomb threats. And I also want to talk about a story which happened in Kalispell, uh, Montana, just recently in uh, the first week of August of 2022. So we can look at that and kind of figure out what your library's response would be and what your response would be as a an employee then faced with this situation, which I'll talk about in just a moment. So let me first start by saying that different strokes for different folks means that your response to threatening situations is not my response and vice versa. But there are some lessons to be learned about how people make threats and the difference between people who make threats, uh, which are public and verbal and and in your face and, and intention getting and provocative and scary versus people who don't. In my experience, and this is based on a model called Hunters versus Howlers, which comes from a group I belong to called ATAP, the Association of Threat Assessment Professionals. We refer to people who howl. They draw a lot of attention to themselves. They want to scare people. They want to be provocative. They want to frighten folks in the workplace, uh, in, in uh, public situations. Oftentimes, they're taxpayers, library patrons, customers, that type of thing. The other end of the spectrum is people we call hunters who do not threaten the targets directly, who do not draw attention to themselves, oftentimes engaging in stealth behavior. Those are the ones that end up uh, showing up and wanting to hurt somebody, especially fatally. So when we look at workplace violence situations, mass attacks around the country, we've seen plenty of examples where this person just shows up. They have an agenda, which is a covert, hidden agenda, which they use themselves, that, that anonymous um, thinking where they don't draw attention to themselves in terms of making threats other people could diagnose or figure out uh, what they what they mean by that. Those are the ones that are most dangerous. The good news is most of the people we deal with, especially in the library world, taxpayer contact world, are howlers. They want you to be afraid. They want people to, to be frightened of them. They want to draw negative attention to their behavior. They have a variety of motives for this. Uh, attention getting, uh, low self-esteem, immaturity, mental illness, uh, drug and alcohol use. There's lots of reasons that they do this. So let's talk about a case that happened in Kalispell at the first of August, uh, the first week of August, and it was just broken in this uh, paper called the flatheadbeacon.com is the website and written by a a reporter named Micah, M-I-C-H-A-H, Drew, D-R-E-W, in the flatheadbeacon.com. This is August 29th. 2022, library sees resignations following bullet-riddled books. The subhead of this piece is former staff cites concerns over personal safety as reasons for leaving. Uh, two longtime library staffers or library advisors have resigned from their posts due to perceived threats to their safety after several bullet-ridden books, bullet-riddled books were dropped off at the library earlier this month. A third employee who had previously planned to retire this year also mentioned safety concerns upon leaving. On August 3rd, library staff in Kalispell 
Montana found five books left in the overnight book drop that had appeared to have been shot with a firearm. All library branches closed for the day while law enforcement investigated. They determined it was an isolated incident and there was no threat to staff or to the public. Two days later, two more books were found with bullets lodged in them. Library staff say that similar markings on the books indicated they were likely from the same person. While Director Ashley Cummins uh, said law enforcement still did not feel there was any threat to the community, members of the library staff opted to leave their positions. She said, they said that they did not feel safe coming to work anymore. They signed up to be library workers. They didn't sign up for that, unquote. Two additional staff members have expressed desires to resign as well, but Cummins said that so far that has not happened. Instead, the director is working to reassure the staff with new safety precautions, including the installation of security cameras around each library branch and new mandatory monthly safety trainings. She said, quote, I'm attempting to promote the positive interactions and aspects of our daily work. Uh, she told this to the uh, Library Board of Trustees at their August 24th, 2022 meeting. I'm hoping to continue working to smooth things over in the community, she told the Beacon, uh, Flathead Beacon, uh, that then hopefully we won't have to deal with this anymore. While law enforcement, uh, that's close quote, while law enforcement has found no connection between the shot books and recent aggressive rhetoric at board meetings by, by members of the public, the resignations highlight continued fallout for the library that can be traced back to trustee actions over the last year, including attempting to remove LGBTQ plus books from the library's collection. At the trustee meeting, the fiscal year budget showed a budget surplus of $122,137.27. The savings came entirely from salary line items due to resignations and unfilled vacancies over the last year. So that's the end of that article, which you can find online, flatheadbeacon.com. So let's talk about what this all means. And certainly, uh, if I was a library employee and you were you and I were coming into work and we found books and the book drop that had bullet holes in them, that is not a subtle signal, is it? That's a pretty pretty uh, overt, in-your-face threat made symbolically. Now, a couple things. Um, this is Kalispell, uh, which I know a lot of folks uh, who live in that, that part of the world. And it is a heavy-duty gun culture. So anytime you see a sign in Kalispell, a lot of other places, including where I am in Missouri as well, that says no hunting, you can guess that that sign is shot full of holes. Sort of ironic, yes? So when we look at how people communicate by shooting bullets into books, it's a pretty pretty intense message. It's a pretty serious threat. But what is the message that is given when the books are left on the book drop? Now, lots of ways we can look at it. One message is, um, you're next, and, and I'm going to come in and get you, and you know, be afraid that this could happen to you. That's, that's one extreme of the message. Uh, the other message, and that's probably why they closed the library and probably why the police were involved to investigate and figure out what was going on. That's a pretty intense uh, message at one end of the spectrum. At the other end of the spectrum, you could look at it and say, here's this guy, this person being a jerk. And I say guy because it seems unlikely that this was a woman who's done this. This seems like male, male uh, behavior, does it not? So when we look at this situation from the, this is an obnoxious uh, idiot who's done this, uh, that's another perspective as well. It doesn't mean we aren't concerned, but, 
But I would be more concerned if this person, of course, showed up at the library, let's say, with the books shot full of holes and threw them at a library staffer and said, you're next. That would certainly be a, a bold threat, would it not? So I'm always looking in these situations at the anonymity of the threat maker. And when we have anonymous threat makers, and we'll use somebody, and I'm assuming it's one person, perhaps it's two, uh, with some, some alcohol and firearms involved, they shot up these books and put them in the book drop. I'm assuming that they don't want to be caught, that they don't want to be identified, they don't want to be recognized. And so that's why they did this. They didn't show up and, and throw these on the desk of the director and say, you're next, or come into the library and put them on the circulation desk and say, you know, this is the message to the rest of you. They want anonymity. So in my world, in threat assessment, whenever people hide their identity, whether it's through, through hidden emails, which, you know, they don't have their name on them, but just some, you know, I hate your guts at, at uh, yahoo.com, um, that's a, a more of a relief to me because it suggests they fear consequences for the behavior. So if somebody came into the library and said, I shot up these books and, and threw them at the library employees or threatened the director or burst into a city council or county board or library board meeting with these things, that would certainly be a higher risk threat, would it not? Sure. And we'd have a police response to that for sure. When we look at this situation, certainly the police uh, should come and investigate. And the reason for the police investigation is to say, have we seen this behavior in our town in some other format, whether it's happened to something that was dropped off in front of the grocery store or left at a bank or something like that before. There are things that happen when it comes to threatening behavior where the person making the threats will have multiple targets. And it could be a school. It could be uh, the employer of, a, of an ex-girlfriend. It could be the ex-girlfriend's house. It could be their ex-employer. It could be some public location like a courthouse, uh, a city council building, a DA's office, something like that, where they would leave the sort of symbolic shot up documents, shot up books kind of a thing as a message. Um, the fact that they are, again, anonymous gives us some sense of, of the lessening of the threat, even though that sounds counterintuitive. These folks are worried about being caught. The person that's more in your face and says, yeah, I did it. What are you going to do is the guy who scares me, not the person who does these things anonymously. Okay. So the police invo get involved and the police investigate because they want to say, do we see other examples of this before? And does anybody in the PD, patrol or investigations, have a sense of who this might be based on previous interactions with them as cops or as investigators? We're working on a case where this person mentioned the library. We're working on a case where this person mentioned government in general. And they said they might do the specific things and then, you know, helps us narrow it down who it is. Now, I'm no expert on on uh, checking out books because I don't work in a library, but I'm assuming we might be able to figure out who checked out the books. And that's why it says in the piece that there's a sense that um, these things were done by the same person, maybe because of a message that they wrote or scrawled or put inside the book, or the fact that they were all checked out by the same person. So I don't think we have to be Sherlock Holmes to figure out who had the books last unless they were stolen from the library and then someone shot them and put them back in the book drops. When we consider the impact on the staff, with these situations, they certainly have every right to be afraid and every right to be concerned for their safety. How we manage that fear is critically important to keeping them feeling safe and empowered and, and knowing that we have some steps in place. And, and certainly this library uh, uh, director, Ms. Cummings, Cummins, C-U-M-M-I-N-S, she has said we're going to put uh, cameras into the library and also in increase our number of trainings. That, that seems reasonable. 
I would put cameras by the book drops. Uh, that might be able to help help things figure out when stuff was was uh, dropped off there when we look at everybody that came through from some span of time, right? I would also talk to staff as a as a larger group, and I've done this before in my work to say, let let's talk about this. Let's talk about your fears and concerns. Let's talk about what what you think might happen, what you think this may be drawn from, you, what what the what the motive for this might be, whether it's the the um, retaliation for the LGBTQ uh, issue that this library is dealing with or some other reason, t- let's talk about it as a staff. And also the library leader's function is to reassure people that we're on it, that we've had a police conversation, that there's been a police investigation, um, that, that we have certain things that we're working on in terms of who might have done this. The police have some ideas and some leads and some follow-ups to do. And that we are committed to not letting somebody shut down our library because of this event. And we're committed to having a safe place for our patrons and for our staff. So if I was uh, in managing this library from this situation, I would have a group discussion, all hands on deck, all, all staff meeting to say, let's talk about what you think about what happened. Let's talk about who you think might be involved or might be responsible for this. Let's talk about what I'm willing to do or ready to do or have done as a library director to get some security improvements in place. Let's talk about being vigilant as employees to pay attention to threats or behavior that you would think may be connected to this event, that you may hear some gossip or some scuttlebutt. Somebody may talk about uh, someone they know that did this, or they may be the person that leaks out the fact that they did it because they want to be provocative, and they want you to know it's them so that you can be afraid. Those things may happen. So I'm always of the mindset that we don't keep these things quiet, that we share this information with each other so that there's transparency and there's a sense that we can all come up with some solutions and we can all provide some information which could be useful for the cops and for the library director to figure out what's what's who's responsible for this and what to do next. Because you may have heard something that your colleague did not. You may have seen something that your colleague did not and vice versa. The collection of of little puzzle pieces or mosaic tiles put together can give us a much clearer picture as to what what went on, who did this, and what our next steps are. So if I look at the situation in, in Kalispell, would I say, would I have closed the library? Well, perhaps I would closed the library for the morning and had a staff conversation and said, here's what we're doing with the police department, here's what they've done so far, and I'd open up in the library in the afternoon. or that's not possible, then I would have closed the library for one day, but then back at it the next day because, not that I don't care about employees, but we want to say to the public and we want to say to this potential threatener, this perpetrator, this person who did this, that we're not scared and we're not going to shut down because of you. And we're not going to let you dictate our opening and closing. We're not going to let you dictate our function as a business. And we are a business which has a a duty to continue to provide services to the public. And we are a business that has a right to operate. Whether this person disagrees with our our social um, uh, causes and and social uh, issues that we're we're bringing to attention in the library, so what? We have the right to operate our our facility in a safe way and you can't shut us down with fear and threats. So in terms of the staff members leaving, of the people that that, uh, retired or quit, I get it. Sometimes you are at kind of a crossroads in your own thinking about your safety or you're in a crossroads and for your own thinking about your employment. You say, I wanna go do something else or it's time for me to retire anyway or I've never you know, felt comfortable working here. It was just, it was going to be a part-time job. And, you know, now I'm going to go get a full-time job later somewhere else, that kind of a thing. I get it. I also get the fact that people are 
fearful these days in the culture that we live in, especially driven by the news media, that everything's supposed to be out there killing us, whether it's, it's corona or terrorism or, or um, you know, uh, evil hornets or whatever it is that's coming from some other place or some other part of the world or some part of the United States that's supposed to do us harm, the media loves to talk about these. And you can imagine the news media on this story in Kalispell knocked each other over to get there to cover the, the events and to talk about what happened because they like to make people feel afraid. I don't like, or I don't suggest, um, having your head in the sand, and I don't like to, to suggest having your head in the sand as an appropriate a response to anything in the life. But I often talk in this, this discussion, this podcast, and in Library 2.0 trainings about vigilance and paying attention to those situations where you should be concerned and paying attention to those behaviors and patrons where there are, are threats, verbal or anonymous or by email or by phone or, or we know who this person is or we do not. Those are things we need to investigate and figure out what the motive is, what the, the rationalization is for their behavior, why they're doing it, who they are, etc. But I also believe that we should not be shut down by somebody making a phone call for like a bomb threat, which I'll talk about in just a second, or somebody making a, a, sending an email, which makes a threat that, that seeks to shut us down. Because when we do that, when we shut down our facilities, the message that they get is, I can shut you down anytime I want with a stroke of a keystrokes or by picking up my phone or by using some sort of phone service, which makes my phone number anonymous and you won't know who's doing it. I mean, there's lots of ways these creeps can, can engage in these behaviors. And we've seen this with stalking cases as a perfect example. So don't confuse my desire to get back to normal with my desire to put employees at risk. It's not how it goes. I want employees to work safely. I want patrons to work safely. But I also want to say that we are not going to be shut down by idiots with, with cell phones or idiots with shotguns uh, that shoot up our books or anything like that. I also want to put threats into perspective, and that's why I told you about the model hunters versus howlers. Most of the people we deal with, especially in library service, are howlers. Most of the people you deal with that are really the most challenging, threatening patrons have that howler modality, which is they're frustrated, they're angry, they want you to know about it, they have a sense that if they bully you or they bully the organization, they can get something that they want for free or they can get some, some um, um, you, know, you know, thing that they want that helps their life. They also know that by making people feel afraid, they can feel important. And, and this sort of tickles their narcissistic entitlement. I also know that when we step up and say, we're not going to allow these types of people to frighten our employees, there's consequences for people who threaten our folks face-to-face. Um, there's consequences if you try to do it anonymously, especially if we can figure out with help from the cops as to who it is. There's going to be consequences for that, but we're not going to let you shut us down. Let's switch topics for a second and go to something similar, which is bomb threats. So if you look at the concept of bomb threats and you Google Steve Albrecht and bomb threats, which is a weird combination of, of four letters, Steve Albrecht and bomb threats, four words, you can get a pretty good sense that I do not believe, if you look at all the stories where I have been interviewed around the country, and there's quite a lot of them, um, there's two subjects I'm known for besides workplace violence and, and, and library security. It's road rage is one and bomb threats is the other. I'm, I'm often interviewed and I just did a half hour radio show in Canada uh, this week about road rage. So when I look at, at my response to bomb threats, uh, people think that I don't care about folks. And I have had arguments with fire chiefs and police chiefs and sheriff's deputies 
and, and seen commanders about whether or not we should evacuate a facility. And I say, yes, if there is a suspicious package or device that a reasonable person would think is a bomb, by all means, we evacuate the facility. But if it looks like someone's bologna sandwich and an apple and a, and a can of soda in the bag, I'm not evacuating the facility for that. What happens oftentimes in bomb threats is it's made by a howler, oftentimes a person with mental health issues or a kid or somebody who has tremendous revenge uh, orientation towards the facility. They're an ex-employee, they're a current employee who's upset, they're an ex-employee who was terminated or disciplined. They're a patient at a healthcare facility who didn't get the meds that they wanted or didn't get seen by a doctor in a timely way. Um, there are people that simply like to disrupt uh, functions and events. And I remember a case that happened in Canada there's, there's other bomb threats besides the United States and Canada as well, where they had this gala for cancer research, and it was a black tie, you know, ball gown affair, where lots of community leaders in this particular Canadian city and, and you know, rich folks spent lots and lots of money. I think the, the total, you know, fees to get in the door and get a table at, you know, for the, for the chicken dinner was like, you know, millions of dollars, and they canceled the night of the event. They canceled it because they got a bomb threat. Well, uh, they searched this entire large ballroom facility, and of course, they found no bomb. Now, people say to me all the time, especially even cops, but especially people that don't understand the hunter and howler modality, well, of course, they had to shut it down. Of course, they had to evacuate. Of course, they had to search the building. We, there was a bomb threat. What about the liability? And then I always say the same thing. Okay, I hear that. Tell me an example where someone made a bomb threat followed by a bomb going off. Tell me an example where somebody in our world especially recently, let's say the last 50 years, somebody made a bomb threat to a facility over the phone, via email, over, over an anonymous note, by telling somebody you know, in, a, in a phone or in some kind of situation like that, that there was a bomb in the building, and then some span of time later, the bomb went off and killed a bunch of people. It has not happened. The last bomb threat we had on an American flight, and uh, uh, an airline flight in the United States happened, I think, in like 1963 or 1964. Continental Airlines uh, flight over, I think, Iowa was blown up by some guy who got on board with a bomb. Think of all the things you have to go through to get through security these days in, in the United States and other, other countries, whatever their version of TSA is to get on an airplane. You're taking off your shoes and your belt and you can't bring fluids through and and number of ounces of cold cream and all this type of stuff is being carefully scrutinized. We have not had a bomb on a commercial airliner um, in, in this country since the 60s. Now, we've had them in other countries. Uh, Richard Reed, the shoe bomber and places like that, and there was some uh, case of a suspect in the Netherlands, and that's happened in other countries. But we have vigilance here. We have security here. We have TSA here. We have air marshals here. We don't have people getting on board planes with bombs. And whenever, and I've seen this many times, an airline gets a bomb threat, and they will oftentimes publicize it because it will go out over the police radio, which the news media listens to, or somehow somebody in the airline will leak it. And the news media shows up and says, what are you going to do about flight you know, 1604, which is going from Dallas to, to Los Angeles, and had a bomb on board? And they say, oh, we diverted the flight, and we, you know, we pulled over in Tucson, Arizona, and we searched the plane. Well, guess what happens every single time when they search the plane? They find nothing. Steve, of course they have to pull over and land and search the, search the plane. There are lives at risk. I get it. But I also am looking at risk based on the fact that we have not had bombers bomb United States airliners. And when we look at stopping a flight, landing in another city, not the destination city, having a 
sheriff's deputy or some cop or or um, um, somebody from the bomb squad, you know, alcohol, tobacco, firearms, exposed to put on a 120-pound bomb suit in 95-degree heat and, and come on the plane and search the entire thing or bring a dog, a bomb dog onto the plane and, you know, evacuate everybody off the plane and search the entire thing and find nothing and then load everybody back on the plane and fly to the destination city after a four-hour delay of, of all these things. It's wrong. Now, of course I want to save people's lives. Of course I want to be vigilant. You know who I would talk to about a bomb threat on an airliner? I would talk to the flight attendants. I have worked for airlines before, and I know that there are safety seals on the planes. I've worked for Boeing as a consultant. I know what goes on in Boeing airliners. There are safety seals. The flight attendants look at all the nooks and crannies on the plane as they are coming on board themselves to make sure all the stuff that they have loaded snacks and food and water and supplies and fire extinguishers are all in place. They do that. They look through the plane every single time. I trust their judgment. I trust the judgment of the pilots who also communicate with the flight attendants to say, is there anything going on with the plane that we need to know about? We'll look at the outside, the engines and the wings and the ailerons and the tail and all that kind of stuff. You tell us what's going on inside the plane. And if there were any security discrepancies, they would talk to each other and to the pilots and to the maintenance crews and even to airport police to say, here's what's going on with this plane that we have concerns about. We're not going to fly with it. That doesn't happen. What happens when the news media gets a hold of a bomb threat on, on an airliner, a United States airliner, and they publicize that this, this plane diverted and landed and was searched, what it tells the bomb threat maker is, yep, I did it again. I, I shut down a commercial airliner. I shut down a billion-dollar business. I shut down a multi-billion-dollar industry with a phone call, with an email. I'm not saying we don't try to catch these people. I'm not saying we don't try to look for every way to capture these folks based on their electronic footprint or their, or their behavior that matches some, some profile that we've seen before of people that do this type of stuff and put them in jail or put them in prison. But I am saying let us be reasonable in how we respond to things that are not actual threats where they're taking place where the, the danger to, to body and soul is immediate as opposed to something that could happen. Bomb threats are made by bomb threat makers. Guess what bombers make? Bombs. In no example do we see either the Unabomber or the Oklahoma City bomber at the Federal Building or the uh, Boston Marathon brothers that blew up the, the Boston Marathon. In any of those cases, did we see any prior warning to the bomb threat being, the bomb being made as a bomb threat and then detonated. It did not happen. There was no bomb threat. There was just a detonation of the devices. What that tells me is bomb threat makers make bomb threats. Bombers make bombs. And here's the sad part. We don't know about bombers making bombs until they detonate the device. We do not find bomb threats with an actual device in this country. We just do not. We just do not. That doesn't mean I'm not trying to arrest these people who make bomb threats. That doesn't mean I wouldn't search the facility. That doesn't mean I wouldn't bring in sheriff's deputies or dogs to search the facility or PD officers to search the facility. I've searched facilities. We use a three-way method called ground to waist. That's where we look first. Then we look waist to head, head height. That's where we look second. And then we look head to ceiling. That's where we look third. Using the toes to top of the ceiling approach like this, you can search a building pretty quickly and figure out if there's an actual device. Well, in every bomb threat case I ever was at when I was a cop, there was no bomb found. Now, lots of people make bombs in their garage and blow themselves up. We see uh, alcohol, tobacco, firearms, or sheriff's department employees going to high schools for ice bombs, dry ice bombs. We see um, uh, the after effects of somebody messing around with a bomb in their garage and blowing themselves up. 
but we do not see bomb threats followed by a bomb in this country. I will do my very best to figure out who did it, but I'm not going to shut down the library. I'm not going to shut down a school. I'm not going to shut down a city government office. I'm not going to shut down a, a gala in Canada over a threat made over the phone or through somebody else or through some type of electronic means because of some bomb threat guy wants to shut down our business. I will not do it. When I look at these subjects from a threat assessment perspective, we all take risks. Getting in your car, getting on the bus to go home, getting, get, walking across the street to get from point A to point B, there's all, always risks involved. I'm not a crazy person. I'm not a risk taker. I am careful. I am a pragmatist, but I'm also a realist, real, real, realistic person. Realist is not a right word. A, a real. The function of a bomb threat investigation is not necessarily to find a bomb. The function of a bomb threat investigation is find out who made the bomb threat. If we find a package, a device with wires and oozing and ticking and leaking and hissing, if it has chemicals that, uh, you know, oozing out of it, if it smells like, like chemicals, if it is something that has an obvious device and a timer uh, attached to it, if it looks like it's attached to something that could obviously blow up like sticks of dynamite or things like that, then we call the bomb squad. We call the fire department, the sheriff's department, we evacuate the facility as safely and quickly as possible and let them do their work. Absent of a device, I will not evacuate a public facility if that's, if that's what the PD or the sheriff or the fire department wants to do, I'm going to talk to them about it and say, give me the reasons why we're going to do this. And don't just say because we have to. And don't just say out of, out of the um, uh, caution that we need to take. And don't just say because, well, I don't, we don't want to be wrong. Those are not good devices or pieces of information to follow based on the fact that something horrible could happen. Well, something could horrible happen every single day. But we still keep going in this country. We still keep functioning and operating as a, as a business and as an entity like the library. So when I think about what happened in Kalispell, I get the response by the staffers who are, were afraid. And that's a pretty provocative fear of having books shot up and left in the, in the book drop. I get it. I'd be more concerned if we knew who exactly where this person was who did it because they made themselves visible to us. If they did it in a provocative way where they showed up and, and threw the books at us or something like that or tossed them on the floor in front of the circ desk and said, you know, now what are you going to do about it? I'd be tremendously concerned about, about what this person's motive is and, and wanting them to get them, get them arrested. But when we look at these anonymous threats like this, I want us to have courage. I want us to have the type of courage where we look and say, we take risks all the time in our world. We're going to take measured risks by looking at the totality of this threat and saying, what's the likelihood? And the likelihood of, of a workplace violence incident involving the, the person coming into the Kalispell Library and shooting it up, we hope is quite low. We look at the example of somebody making a bomb threat to disrupt a, an event or a facility or a government building as being quite low, that they won't carry out those threats. And they do it to be provocative, which is howler behavior. And I hope that makes sense to you. Think about our conversation here in kind of a counterintuitive way. If you see these things in a counterintuitive way, they make a little bit more sense because we don't fall into that trap of fear where we let somebody with a cell phone or an email, email account and a keyboard shut our library down. So thanks for listening. My thanks to, as always, the producer of the Library Service Safety and Security Podcast, Steve Hargadon, the founder of Library 2.0. For more information, visit the Library 2.0 website at, not surprisingly, library20.com. Until next time, I'm Dr. Steve Albrecht. Thanks for listening to the Library Service Safety and Security Podcast.